If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or a small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of The Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of The Bunker Lads branding team. On today's episode of The Transition, I sit down with my good friend, fellow board member, and legal advisor, Mark Snyderman, founder and CEO of the Snyderman Law Group, a boutique law firm that provides pragmatic and strategic advice to small and mid-sized business owners using a disruptive flat fee structure with the long-term goal of becoming an integrated team member to support your entrepreneurial growth. In the early days of launching a venture, sometimes it can feel like we're pulled in 20 different directions with regards to prioritizing our spending. Between business registration fees, trademarks, partnership agreements, and other legal considerations, it can be difficult to determine what you really need in order to protect yourself and your venture. To help you gain a better understanding of the legal considerations early on, Mark and I discuss the non-negotiables that every business owner needs from a legal perspective and how to avoid many of the common pitfalls faced by early stage founders. Mark is my go-to guy for all things legal, and I'm honored to finally have him on the transition to share his insights with all of you. Before we hear from Mark, do me a favor and make sure you subscribe to the transition newsletter on Substack at the link in the show notes. I release a newsletter twice a week, one on Tuesday mornings with actionable tips and advice you can apply in your venture, and another one on Friday where I share the latest transition episode. This past week, I shared my five-step guide to generating revenue for early stage founders. Validate your model, onboard clients, and bring your vision to life. Substack allows you to leave comments on the newsletter and podcast episodes. That way you can let me know your feedback and what topics you'd like me to cover either on the show or write about in the newsletter. If you're interested in contributing to the newsletter with the post, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that it accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Mark, welcome to the bunker. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, Bunker Labs, you all are in for a real treat today. I got my friend, I got my advisor, board member, Mr. Mark Snyderman, uh, to talk to us today about some legal considerations for early stage founders. And just to kind of set the stage for how I was able to meet Mark, back in 2018, when I was a wee uh, baby of an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? I had just quit my full-time job to focus on uh, Ironbound Boxing, my nonprofit arm, full-time. And uh, I was kind of riding a little bit on cloud high because I got this Everlast. I got connected to Everlast Worldwide, which is the largest distributor of boxing equipment globally. And I got to be invited to speak at the Bunker Lab Muster in Philadelphia. So you know how it is when y'all are at these events and you see the people on stage talking. I call them talking heads, looking like they're important. Well, I got invited to be on stage for the first time. It was pretty cool. And uh, I met Mark there. Mark pulled me aside and was like, hey, uh, you know, I would love to work with you. I know you probably got a lot of uh, probably trying to figure all this kind of stuff out and uh, been with me ever since. And that was like, it's almost what, three years later? Yeah, it's probably three years ago. Three years was, ago. You know, I mean, I just thought your story was so inspiring. You know, your your everything you had to say and what you wanted to do was really important to me. Uh, you know, I've been doing a bunch of I had I had done a because I was in the WeWork where Bunker Labs is in Philly. I had done a, a couple, I had helped with a couple of the, the veterans help uh, helping out with some business questions they had, just helping them do things. Uh, they would kind of run upstairs and ask me stuff, you know, on the legal side. I would kind of just keep giving advice. Uh, I love the mission of Bunker Labs. Like, I, and I always say, like, you know, I didn't serve in the military and this is, you know, and I look back and say I, I would have loved to have done that. Uh, just my career, my path didn't take me that way. Uh, but it's my way of giving back. Uh, I spent a whole lot of my career in the in the government contracting world, working with defense contractors. So a lot of my success comes from that world. So it's my way of helping to give. You know, I mean, I only I don't love the term give back, but it's kind of you know, it's the easy way to say it, I guess. 
Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, it's important to have guys like Mark in the ecosystem because I think one of the things for us as veterans and military spouses, it can be limiting Mm -hmm. to some extent if that's all we surround ourselves with, you know, because I feel like um, that bridging that military civilian divide, you know, even just little stuff about, you know, at the end of the day, we got to build a network. And so it's great to have our strong, you know, veteran military spouse ecosystem. We also need to expand networks beyond that to grow. And uh, I was just so happy to get Mark on here because he's someone I trust. He's on my board of my nonprofit. And yeah. I know he cares about helping early stage founders avoid a lot of the pitfalls that can come up, uh, especially with regards to legal matters. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> one of the first things we got to do, though, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's show is, uh, Mark, you got to take off your armor. Okay. For the bunker. So let okay. us know what some you're struggling with as a, as a small business owner. Ah, uh, I mean, there's so many struggles in a day as a small business owner. I mean, there's everything from, you know, the daily motivation and the daily energy where, you know, we all have peaks and valleys and, you know, trying to stay consistent and trying to keep yourself going every day. Uh, you know, I have, you know, I've started now, I think I have, I don't even, I can't, I can't count how many different divisions and businesses I have going right now. And that's a problem that I can't say. I can't even define the number right now. It's probably seven or eight. Uh, you know, you, you kind of lose, you know, the ability to stay focused every day is really hard. Uh, you know, some days my energy isn't where it is. And, you know, uh, you really want to take the armor off. I, you know, I've struggled with depression. Uh, you know, I am, you know, I, I've been through therapy. I do, you know, daily meditation. I try to do yoga. I, I make sure that I work out or do something fitness wise pretty much every day uh, because that's really what helps me. Uh, but everybody has to do things that will help them to, to get through. And, you know, you do, you do realize, you know, especially in, in this last 18 months or so, I think people are much more aware of their mental health than they ever have been uh, because you are, you know, being home alone, being home all the time, you know, whether you're with your family or alone, however that works for you, uh, it's difficult, right? You know, especially, you know, on my day, my day-to-day pre-COVID, uh, I was traveling, I traveled, I think 32 or 35 weeks in 2019 out of the 52. And I went to zero in 2020 and 2021, I've done some traveling, uh, you know, now that, you know, when things started to open up, I've been on a couple trips this year, uh, not being out and about for those of us that are, you know, entrepreneurs and like to meet people and like to help people. It's really yeah. hard, right? it's, it's a, it's a very limiting world to be stuck and not being doing, you know, zoom is great. You know I mean? It's, it's, you know, it's way better than just picking up a phone. Right. Cause at least I can see, but you know, you can't see all of me, you know, I, I've gotten better at trying to use my hands and trying to make sure the camera's far enough away because that's how I talk. Like, and, and you know, but most of the time you can't see body language when, when, as soon as you get to 10 people on the screen, right. All you get is this, right. Yeah. You, you no know body language. You can't really understand what somebody's really doing. Half the time they're looking at another screen, you know, and you don't know if that other screen is the same screen or it's something totally different. And it, it's just really hard to stay focused and and be part of the community, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And you know, my whole the whole the whole reason I started the law firm was, you know, to help people, right? It was, you know, I, I always use the story that, you know when I got out of law school in the late nineties, right? I'm old. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing 50. You know, it was, it was the late nineties. I was in the first law firm. When I first started in law firms, you weren't using email yet. Right. Which sounds amazing. Right. <laughs> it sounds like, uh, like, how's that even possible? But we, we had email was out, but law firms hadn't figured out how to use it. So you were still writing, writing letters and faxing. And, but every time a client was going to go to, you know, I was in Manhattan in Midtown Every time one of our clients was going to go to negotiate a lease or they were going to go to a meeting, they called us. We went with them. Right. And I was like, that seems to be that's the way you practice law back then. And, you know, 20, 30 years goes by and I'm, you know, I'm in I spent my whole career at this point in house and then running a company. And I ran, you know, a government contractor doing a lot of the department of defense work. You know, we grew that company really, really well. And I'm watching the legal practice and I'm saying, what happened? Like, where are the attorneys that are helping small business? Why is nobody showing up at meetings with attorneys anymore? Unless it's an in-house lawyer. And that's a big company, right? That's not like, you know, 
regular small business. You don't have an in-house lawyer. What happened? And I look at it and so it's, it's pretty simple. It's not that lawyers can't do that work and that people don't want them to do that work. They don't want to pay them to do that work. Right. They, you know, you can't tell, what are you going to do? What do you, if you're a small, if I, if I, if I, if we had a conversation on a Friday and I spent, you know, the weekend drafting a memorandum of understanding for you and I sent it to you on Monday and you got a bill from me for $2,500, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to freeze. You're going to be like, I, I yeah. you know, figure it out. It doesn't work. It's, it's not, it's not functional and it's not helping. And, you know, so I think. You know, you don't you only see a lawyer at a meeting right now if it's like the the world's coming to an end or you're signing that or you're closing. You're closing on the documents. Right. That's it. Other than that, the lawyers never show up because nobody wants them. Nobody wants to pay them. So I, I just wanted to change it. Right. Because you can't help small business. I got offered a, you know, a very good job when I was leaving my company. You know, it was a great job. Right. And a Manhattan firm, really just stupid amount of money. And when I met with them and they said, you know, your billing rate's going to be because of your background and your history, you know, your billing rate will be $1,200 an hour. And I said, who, who would I want to talk to that I'm going to charge $1,200 an hour to? So, well, you know, you, you'll, you'll have to get like big businesses and, you know, that's really where you're, where, you know, where you're, where you're focused and that's how you'll, that's how you'll build your book. I said, no, thanks. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, that's not of any interest to me. I'm going to be bored. And I'm, I'm not going to be helping the people that I want to help, right? I went to law school for a reason, and it was to help people. You know, I, I kind of got away, you know, I don't say I got away from it because I took a different path and, you know, became a businessman, you know, before before going back to law. But that's actually what makes me a different lawyer because I actually have been in the trenches. I have run businesses. Every phase of growth from zero to 60 million I've been in, I, you know, I went from, you know, I've run from zero to 300 employees, right? So I've seen a pretty good range and I worked in a public company. So I worked for a billion dollar company. So I have a pretty good understanding of the range of things that you experience as a business owner and how to help companies, you know, sort of overcome all the challenges. And when I tell a story, it's my own story. It's something that happened to me. And, you know, I always say, you, know, you, you always learn more from failure than you do from, uh, from doing good, right? Because you can always figure out you can always look at a failure and figure out how did it go wrong. But when you look at something that went right, you can't always figure out what, what you did to make it go right. Right. Cause there's so many factors involved, but there's always one factor and there's a root cause analysis to any failure that you can do and figure out, okay, that's where it went wrong. And that's where you learn. Absolutely. And I appreciate you open up being honest to, you know, our listeners about, you know, some of the mental health and yeah. those challenges. And I'll tell y'all too, you know, for me, Right. It's always a battle to get the negative talk out of your head. Yeah. You know, I've probably recorded God knows how many podcasts, but every now and then that imposter syndrome kind of tries to come into my head. Now, deep down, I think I've killed the imposter. But whenever I push myself or I challenge myself to do something different, then I can see it start to come back in. Right. So it's like a constant battle. And uh, I try to push through it just by reading and writing and connecting with good people like you on this platform and uh, pushing through all of that stuff. So, uh, but again, appreciate you sharing. So what we're going to do before we do a deep dive on legal considerations, I got to go ahead and acknowledge the organization that brought us here today. Yeah. And that's Bunker Labs, a national network of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs dedicated to helping the military connected community start their own business. We're committed to seeing that every entrepreneur in the military connected community has the network tools and resources they need. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.bunkerlabs.org. Now, Mark, I'm excited. I'm fired up because I knew this would be a good topic. I know we haven't touched legal on this platform yet, but I was like, I got, I know a guy. <laughs> I, got, I got a guy. I got a guy. And I've been reaching out to you and I'm, I'm, and now we're finally able to do it. So I guess one place, let's go in and start with this, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of the mistakes you've seen right off the bat of early stage founders with regards to legal? I would say that the the probably the biggest mistake you see is not getting your partnership uh, documented correctly. Whether it's an LLC, you need an operating agreement. If it's a corporation, you need a shareholders agreement. Getting it on paper exactly what the deal is and how you guys are going to work together, and what's going to happen if God forbid somebody gets hit by a bus 
or you just decide you don't want to work together anymore. Somebody's not pulling their weight, right? Getting that document in place and getting it negotiated and, and vetted out early is critical. And then figuring out, okay, here's the shares and here's how we're going to work together, right? Here's what you're putting in. Here's what I'm putting in. You know, here's the value and we value things, right? We have to value it in the beginning or else really, really bad things happen down the line when you go to raise money, when you need to borrow money, when you bring in another partner, it just gets really, really convoluted. And more often than not, really what happens is somebody, you know, startups, I would say one of the biggest things that they fail, that the reason they fail is people don't commit the time because they can't, right? It's sweat equity and that's what they're putting in. They don't have a lot of money. You know, you're starting a business, you're bootstrapping your way in. And a lot of times you say, well, hey, I, I got to make some money. I'm going to drive Uber. Or I'm going to take a freelance job doing design work for this person, whatever you do. Right. And that focus takes away from the business. And at some point, there's one person that's trying to drive it. And that other person is out there doing something different. And now there's real animosity, probably between two really good friends. And you're going to lose a friendship because of a business, which you should never do. And had you had it in writing as to exactly what was going to happen if you weren't doing it, you have a chance of saving that friendship. You may not, right? Because it may be, it may not, you may not, but at least you have a chance at it. If you had in writing that said, hey, you want to get out, here's how we're going to get you out. Or look, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, we're not, this doesn't work for me. And that way, at least everybody's expectations are set. I've probably done God knows how many incubators and accelerators at this point, probably like eight or something. They always tell you that. Get this stuff on paper. Get this stuff on paper. Get this stuff on paper. Yeah. Yeah. People don't do it. Because it's yeah. like it's like a will, right? How many people do you know that don't have a will? Probably the majority. Why? Because it's talking about something that we don't want to talk about, right? That's an inevitability of, okay, I have to talk about the inevitability of what happens if I die. What, what, who's going to take care of my kids? Stuff that you don't want to think about, right? Because it's terrible to think about. Same thing with your when you're starting a business. You don't want to go into the business saying, "What happens if we? What happens if we fail as partners?" It's a terrible conversation, but it's way better to have that conversation in the beginning than it is to have it when you get to the point of when you get to that point. Because once you're at that point, now it's a terrible conversation. Now it's a really bad conversation. At least before it. You're just talking in hypothetical and you basically all keep saying, ah, oh, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. never going to happen. The reality is, is it happens all the time. So let me ask you this, right? You and I both have a bunch of different stuff cooking. Yeah. Right. And so at what stage does somebody need to get that kind of partnership agreement? Because, you know, for me, right, one of the things I always think about is like, you don't have a real business until you validated the model. Mm -hmm. I, you have paying clients and customers yeah. that, are willing to pay a pay you for a product or service that you made. And then really you don't have a business model until you can prove it over and over again, you know? Sure. So now, okay, I'm listening. I'm a founder. I'm like, okay, I hear you on the partnership agreement, Mark, but like, I can't do it for all eight of my ventures. You know, do I do it? Like at what stage do you recommend? You know, we, yeah, I mean, we the way I look at the way I do things is, you know, if, if you're starting out with, you know, if you're just starting like a, a venture to test it out and see where it's going to go and you have a partner that's going to help you in it, you don't need a full don't 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 do it yet right you you know especially if you you know for somebody like you that has an umbrella organization that you're working under right it's kind of like a division you're just kind of working you're just trying to see if what's going to happen you're going to germinate an idea see how it goes if you already have a company in place so your your liability is protected above right which is important you know and you're going to germinate an idea and just seed it then you may want to just get a simple memorandum of understanding in place with whoever you're going to work with to say hey we're going to do X, Y, and Z together to see if we can prove this out. If we prove this out, then we'll, then we'll, then we'll form a company and we'll deal with it all then. You know, the more you have in writing, the better off you always are, you know, and look, I'm a lawyer. I don't always do it. Right. I, I give people this, you know, the, it's like the shoe cobbler that doesn't, that has uh that's walking on bad shoes. Right. You know, the, that old saying, you know, I do it myself. Like I don't always, I don't always listen to my own advice. Right. And make sure that when you get those things moving, you have it in writing because it, it does, it does, it just gets, it gets muddier and muddier every, 
every day that you don't have it. And the more chance of success, the harder it becomes, then the, then the negotiating position becomes totally different. How much does somebody need to allocate for that? So you're saying, okay, we're, we're going to start this, you know, we're, we're, we're committed. We're going to make this thing real. Yeah. We need to get this partnership agreement going, right? How much does a, does a team need to, to allocate for it? I mean, I, I, I personally keep my rate, you know, like everybody has different, you know, rate structures. I use, I try to use fixed price whenever possible. And I have a formation package that's $1,500 that includes, you know, getting your company formed, your tax ID number, you know, advice on, you know, all those things that go with it and helping you get that shareholders agreement and initial bylaws and all that kind of stuff in place. Perfect. And I yeah. think that's that's a good transition to our next point. Let's talk about non-negotiables, yeah. right? So we've already got the big thing, right? You got to have this. Obviously, you got to get your legal set up, LLC, S4, yeah. whatever direction you want to go, right? And outside of that, though, you said partnership agreement. Yeah. Coming but what are the other like non-negotiables of like, okay, you're a founding team, you got this budget. These are the legal things that you need to be prepared for. Yeah, you mean you, you got to have an NDA, like a form NDA, a form non-disclosure agreement, in you know that you can use. You want to make sure that uh, if you're a tech company or anything along those lines where you're doing development, make sure you have IP assignment with with the people that are working for you consulting agreements you know however you're working with them make sure it's all work for hire right that anything that they do for you and any any development people you hire that you're getting rights to that i to that intellectual property let's break that down first on the nda thing right i've heard mixed feelings about the nda because a lot of times most of founders let's be honest they don't have anything yet. Yeah. Right? They think they are. And they're like, we need to yeah, sign an NDA. Yeah. Right. And I've heard that it can come across negative to potential investors or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a venture capital firm, they won't sign them. Because if you think about it from their perspective, they get, you know, a thousand deals on their desk at any given time. And if they signed NDAs on every one of them, everything would trip over itself. They would have no way to keep track of it. So I use NDA, you know, and, 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 and the reality is an NDA is only worth the piece of paper it's written on and the trust between the two people that signed it. Right. So it's really just to me, it's a measure of, OK, do I tr do you trust me enough to say when I when I open up my kimono and I give you all my information, I give you all my financial modeling, everything I'm doing that you're not going to go take that and run with it and do something else with it. So most of us don't talk to VC firms on a daily basis. We're talking to other small businesses, part, potential partners, maybe angel investors, things along those lines. They should sign NDAs with you. They shouldn't have a problem with it. And like I said, you know, it's not like you're going to enforce the, you're, the likelihood that you're actually going to go to court and try to enforce an NDA is pretty low. You're doing it as a matter of trust and as a measure that this person is a, you know, they're willing to sign it. Cause usually when I throw a flag up, if I'm talking to another small business, that's in a similar sector as me. Right. So say, um, you know, like I have, uh, like I have a, uh, one, one of my startups, we were developed, we're prototyping a, a shield for dent for dental offices to try to shield for aerosols. So if I were to go to a, you know, another, uh, you know, like a dental company, right. to manufacture something and I asked them to sign an NDA, before I show them the designs and all the, and all the packet and, and everything that we have, if they're not going to sign that NDA, there's a reason they're not going to sign the NDA because they want to steal my stuff. Got it. So you gotta, you gotta be able to read between the lines. Yeah. You gotta read between the lines. Like the, it's like, you know, if they're like, but you know, no, so you have to kind of know your audience and, and you know, it's a pretty standard practice to be able to sign them. And like I said, you know, it's not like, you know, the likelihood I'm going to sue somebody over it, it, you know, or try to go grab an injunction against them, it would have to be pretty heinous. And it would have to have a lot of value to me before I did that. And I would say the other thing that, you know, I think we, we talked about before is non-circumvention. And to try to break that down, that's basically like, you know, that if I bring this deal to you, you're not going to go around me and go right to the person, right? So if I'm, if I'm, a, if I'm a distributing for uh, another company, right? If I, you know, for it's a coffee company and I'm doing, and I'm their distributor and I bring you and I bring it to you and I make you sign and you sign that you're not going to go around me and go right back to the, to the manufacturer and go buy it yourself. Like you have to, you have to protect yourself because a lot of people, 
a lot of small businesses, you're doing a lot of intermediary kind of transactions and you can get totally screwed out of it and you lose, you know, that, that, that money is what you need to make your business drive, right? You're not going to be able to get to the, be the manufacturer. You're not going to get to be the top of the chain if everybody keeps going around you and you're not getting anything for it. So put that up front before you even start yeah. working with people. Talk to us about this IP assignment. Okay. So intellectual property obviously is, you know, whatever, you know, the, the actual, it's a, a non-tangible good, right? It's the, the, your brand name. It could be your packaging. It could be your, your design. It could be software code, right? All that stuff. You know, if you hire somebody and you don't put in writing that it's, you know, quote unquote work for hire, meaning whatever I hired you to do is my work, not yours. They technically own it. So you want to make sure you have proper assignment and even employees of your company or consultants or, you know, if, if they're working for you and you don't have anything in writing, they have a solid argument to say that they, that they did it offsite or I did it, you know, in the weekend and it's mine, you don't own it. And that, those kind of arguments have happened throughout history. I mean, you have like, you know, examples of, uh, you know, all kinds There's Mattel's had fights with, you know, people that have come up with toys that, you know, that they consulted with, or, you know, it happens all the time, software code in particular, where somebody says, well, I, you know, I wrote that code on the weekend. That's my code from two years ago that I'm recycling. You don't own any of it. And now the critical piece of your, you have a system, they have a, a one piece of code that fits in it. And that piece of code is what makes it all go. And they own it and they know they own you. They can leverage you for a whole lot of money where, you know, you're saying, well, I paid you to do this. This is what I paid you for. How are you going to prove it? How are you going to prove it? Yeah, I'm advising a startup now, and they have this. They're having an issue with the co-founders. Yeah, and one of the co-founders was like, "I own the IP." Yeah, and I'm licensing the IP to the company, and it's right. like, "No, you're not. Yeah. Like that doesn't no. work." You know, so how can I mean? We, again, people don't think this stuff comes up. Yeah, it comes up all the time. When, when money starts coming on the table, deals start falling through. Yeah, people start looking for other options. And they're like, well, I do have all this intellectual property that I made. So I just think that's a teachable moment. And yeah. just making that very clear that like the company, the entity that you two or three or whatever are building, right? It owns the IP for stuff yep. that's done, not the individual. And if and if you're coming in with background IP, like things that you're contributing, make sure that it's it's written somewhere, that it's being contributed and assign the and assign it's called an assign assignment, right? You would assign the rights to that intellectual property to the company and put that in as part of the format as part of the original documentation. And then you have it. While we're on IP, I know one thing that always comes up is do I need to get a trademark? Yeah. People talk no. about, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a constant, you know, uh, question is when do I trademark? Uh, to me, you know, you have the rights, common law rights in the, in the United States gives you rights to, you know, your, your, your mark from the minute you start using it. Right. Of course, if, if somebody else has it, I do suggest to everybody to at least at the minimum, go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, USPTO.gov. There's a section called TESS, which is the trademark electronics system, whatever they call it. And you can search trademarks. It's all publicly available. It's free. Make sure that nobody has a trademark that's exactly like what you're asking for before you even start. Right. In a perfect world, if you have money, you can go to a trademark attorney and get them to hand, get them to do all this kind of searching. But not everybody has that kind of money, and we're all startups, and you don't always do it, right? So you can do that on your own. You can search Google, you can search tests before you go out and, and start using a mark. And then when you're ready to trademark, I, I would say you're not ready to trademark until you've proven your you've proven you have a business. You're gonna own a so you're gonna own some great cool trademark but you didn't do anything with it. Okay. Now you just spent, you know, even if you did it on legal zoom for a couple hundred, you still spent a couple hundred on something that, you, that you're never going to use. Right. Yeah. I just, uh, I trademark my stuff, you Yeah, know? but it was after, it was, it was, it was after a while. You right. You, you had, you had some usage. You, you also have to have three evidence of three times you've used it, right. A business card, a, a website, you know, a brochure, you know, a t-shirt somewhere where you've put, where you've put it a couple times. And you know that you can, as soon as you, you can comp by common law, you can, you can use it, uh, a TM on anything that you're, that you're using. 
You have the right to put TM on it and claim your trademark on it under common law. You can't put an R with a circle unless it's actually registered with the with the the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So for our listeners, if there's one consistent theme you hear me say on this show is validate the business model first. Yes. As soon as possible with paying clients. And you can do that if you're a bootstrap entrepreneur. You can do that in like a week. You know, if you're a tech startup building some proprietary whatever, you know, maybe you can validate it with some pre-sales. I don't know. But um, that's our thing is like because I, I think it can be overwhelming when you first start out. Like you have all this stuff you need to do. But I just I don't want our listeners to get confused on like the most important stuff, which is you got to make sure you're generating revenue also. 100%. And all this stuff is going concurrently with it. But it sounds like you're saying at a certain point, it does make sense to get a trademark. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on what, you know, like what the name is and how valuable that is to your brand. I mean, typically your brand, you know, it, it you know, like if it's your personal name, like, you know, like, look, I, I have, you know, I probably should, but I, I never registered Snyderman Law Group, right? It's my name, right? I, I own my name. I, I, I always say like, you should own your name and you should buy your domains and everything. I bought my kids domains. You don't want somebody to have them at some point, right? Yeah. They should have those. They're, they're, that's their intellectual, that's their name. That's their asset. Uh, you know, uh, I think people spend a lot of money on trademarks, uh, when they may not need it. It's not to me, it's not, it's not your, there's a lot of things you need to do before you say, I'm going to go spend money on that today. Understood. Makes sense to me. All right. Now something else you talked about was consulting. Yeah. Talk to us about consulting. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the difference between consultants and employees is a big deal, right? Uh, when you're starting a company, because there's a liability built into using employees versus consultants, right? The IRS by nature wants you to have employees. And we say, why, why, what does the IRS care? The IRS cares because if they don't have you do, if, they, if you're not using employees, they're not getting their share of FICA from the, from the employer. And that's really what it comes down to. It's that 8%, right? They want that 8%. So they will push to make sure that if you're saying somebody is a consultant, that you ought to, you better have an agreement in place with them, an independent contractor agreement that tells them they're an independent contractor, they're going to pay their own taxes, and you better meet the test, right? And the test, the test under uh, the previous administration, they had they had changed the test finally because the test has been this like fifteen point really hard to understand test of how do you determine if somebody's an employee or an independent contractor? They changed the test to this great four part test that was very clear. It got flipped back again by the Biden administration. So we're back to the original test, which is super confusing to any. It's confusing to lawyers, not only to people that read it, you know, a layman. Right. So it's I would say if the person if if you if the person's working for you 40 hours a week and you're managing all their work and you're telling them what to do, they are not an independent contractor. Like they're just not. And you ought to you ought to look to get a payroll in place and pay them the right pay them on W two and pay them the right way. I had a, a a friend of mine's gym. They ran a CrossFit gym. Yeah, and they ran into this issue with one of their trainers. You know, because uh, I guess he wasn't setting aside money at tax time. So then tax man comes asking, and then he's basically said that you know he was an employee. Yeah, and that they were supposed to be paying taxes. Yeah, and he they end up losing in court. I'm sure they did. Especially in New Jersey, they would definitely lose. <laughs> uh, this was down in North Crackalacket. Oh, North, North Crackalacket. <laughs> but just, yeah, I call it North Crackalacket. But just, <laughs> you know, just a word of caution. Yeah. You know, there's all this stuff that comes up, but yeah. it's like, I've always found that I learned through stories. And so it's, it's interesting hearing you say a lot of this stuff. And I'm thinking in my head, like, I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's a typical story, especially gyms, hairdressers, uh, you know, salons, uh, Yoga studios have had, there's been a huge thing on yoga studios throughout the throughout, throughout history on whether they're independent contractors or employees, because, you know, they say that, you know, each, cause each yogi has a different model and they don't use your model and they have to bring their own stuff. Like it's, there's a, there's a lot of these cases out there. So I always say, you know, at a minimum, you want to make sure you have a solid agreement with somebody that says that they understand that they're an independent contractor. So at least they can't come back like like the guy did in in, in North Crackalacka and say, "Hey, I'm not a I'm, I'm I was an employee." He was taking they were taking taxes out. Say, "No, you signed a document that says you understood you weren't getting taxes taken out. You can't claim that." 
Now, next, you wanted to talk about contracts. Yeah. So are you talking about contracts in a sense of, you know, uh, when we get clients, you start bringing on those paid clients yeah, or you, just contracts in general? Yeah, I would say, you know, the, the big piece is, is definitely having, you know, good service agreements, you know, depending on what you're doing, whether it's selling goods and you want to have, a, you know, a solid set of terms and conditions that outlines what you're selling and what it means or services, same thing. You want to make sure you have something that says, here's what I'm giving you and be very clear in your statement of work and your deliverables so you can get paid and there's no questions right getting paid is the is the is the, the number one thing you have to do right you got you gotta you gotta get your invoices out you gotta get paid you know or you have no business right you can you can sell all the you can sell all you want right if you're not collecting the money you know and you don't have a solid agreement to show how you're going to collect the money you have no way to collect it later on if they don't pay right if you don't have any agreements you don't have anything in writing with somebody you buy, you know, I sell, you know, let's say I'm buying from you and you sell me, you know, a podcast service. I have nothing in writing with you. Uh, you know, you send me an invoice. I say, yeah, I don't feel like paying. I don't feel like paying Mike. Good luck to you. You have nothing in writing to be able to go to collect on that. Like it makes it really hard if you want to send it to collections or you want to try to collect that money. So you want to make sure you have something in writing that says, you know, here's, here's what I offered. Here's what I sold you. Here's what you're paying for it. Here's when here's when the money's due, and you want to have some standard, you know, warranties, indemnities, those kind of, you know, all that other fun legal stuff that comes about. But it it, it really is important stuff. Like people say, it's boilerplate, but some of the boilerplate is the most important things you can have in in that you have as a business. So if we're scrolling the internet and we're pulling these service agreements off some yeah. random website or Google Docs or whatever. Are those still enforceable or do you recommend that we have a lawyers look at them? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm always going to recommend you get a lawyer to look at something. You know, I would say, you know, people are afraid of, you know, there's a lot of lawyers that tell you legal zoom is junk and it's terrible. And it's this, it's not legal zoom. All the, all the agreements that are on legal zoom were written by lawyers. Like legal zoom was, was invented by lawyers. So don't say that this stuff is, is, you know, quote unquote crap, right? It's, it's not, I would say in most cases, a lot what you'll get on legal zoom or or scrolling the internet is 80 percent of what you need the problem is is that 20 percent right is how you don't what you don't know you don't know and you're not going to know what a lawyer is going to know to fill that other 20 percent out and tailor it so that it meets your needs as a company right so that's really what you're getting if you can't afford a lawyer and you can't do anything about it right now and you can't find, you know, some support to help you, 80% is way better than 0%. So one thing I always think about, though, is like how enforceable is this stuff? So I'm a bro. Let's say I'm a broke entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. And somebody doesn't follow their service agreement. Right. Now, what do I do? I go and I tell them I'm going to sue them and then I got to get some money. Like, what does this process look like? Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, like. I, you know, I've never done litigation. It's not my thing. Uh, I'm not a litigator. I never wanted to be a litigator. My whole goal as a business lawyer is to never get in litigation. I should never, ever have to litigate. If I had to litigate, I did something wrong. So if you have tight agreements and tight things and, you're, you know, you need to check people out, right? You need to do your due diligence when you're doing work with people, whether that's a vendor that you're going to hire, a contractor, make sure you did your due diligence to know that that person is a good business, a good person, a good business to work with. Don't just work. Don't just take anything because that's where people get in trouble, right? You work with people. I've done it myself, right? You know, you end up, you know, I took on clients that I thought were, you know, good people and you work, work, work. And then you find out they're not paying their bill and you keep working because you're, you know, you're trying to help them. They still don't pay their bill. And next thing you know, they owe you a whole bunch of money and you have to stop working for them. And now you got to figure out how you're going to collect it, right? I'm an attorney and I have trouble collecting money, right? So yeah. a, 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 an entrepreneur, right? It's, it's really hard. That's the hard stuff, right? You know, you can't, you can't threaten to go crack a lack of them, right? even though you might want to. Yeah. <laughs> right. Know? I can't use my, I can't use my boxing background. I end up in jail. You know, can't, 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 you know, you have the lethal weapons over there. You can't go, can't go walking around smashing people, even though, you know, certainly, we'd like to sometimes, you know, it is the, it is the hard stuff. And I would say, you know, do your due diligence, get a good agreement in place, 
nine times out of ten people do the right thing and make and 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 pay. That one out of ten, you know, there's great collections attorneys out there that go after people, and it's what they do. And if you have a solid agreement, you've given them the ammo they need to be able to go get it and let them do their thing. And they take a third, right? It's okay. You know, I'll take I'll take two thirds of what's owed to me if they're going to go fight it for me, rather than me trying to figure out how I'm going to get it. Now, before I transition us to talk about actually taking investment and what to plan for for that, I got a few more questions for you. Are there any more non-negotiables that we didn't go over for early stage founders? I, in terms of like I think budgeting? that's, I mean, I think that's a, a good set of documentation. You know, I would say like, so, you know, I think we, we talked about consulting. We said if you're going to do employees instead, you know, obviously using a payroll company, you know, to make sure that all the taxes are, are correct and being filed properly is really important. You know, having a, a solid bookkeeper, accountant, some some that's that's important stuff, right? To make sure that you're gonna be able to understand what do you need to do to file taxes and how do you get that stuff done. But you know, most people already have somebody that's helping them where they're using TurboTax. You know, you you, you kind of get the that that's a necessity. Uh, that's probably and if you have employees, you want to make sure that there's an offer letter, right? Document that you know, what it is that the relationship is, you know, it's at will employment, you know, I'm hiring you to do this work. We're going to make this work. Here's what I'm going to pay you expect to be paid every two weeks. So you don't have any of those kind of questions because wage and hour complaints are really nasty stuff. I bet. And on that, do you have templates at Snyderman law? Yeah, we, we, we have, we have, that's all part of, usually part of like, you know, formation packages and things. We, we, we provide all those kind of documentation for people. All right. So now I want to talk about actually getting capital, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of founders on here that like, oh, I'm trying to raise capital Everybody for my raise money. small business or my startup or whatever, right? What does that process look like? Because, you know, I've read, what's the Bradfield's Venture Deals. Yep. I read a couple other books, right? You've got to have money for that as well, right? To have lawyers make sure that that process is taken care of. But yeah. there's ways around it in a sense that they can defer payment or, you know, talk to us about that process. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, I mean, some of the, the a lot of firms have real, you know, raising capital has become this like, you know, it's a whole industry in and of itself. Uh, and, you know, I always say to people, you know, do you really need to raise capital? Have you exhausted every other possibility? Because the minute you take in other people's money, investors' money, you've changed your business. It's not just your business anymore. And you took, you know, Aunt Irene's cash and you invested it in your, and she invested in your business. You owe her. And you have, it's a, it's a very different thing when you start taking on people's money and people don't get it until they do it. And the lack of sleep that, that it will cause, you better make sure you're ready for it. You better make sure. Uh, in terms of the legal work that has to be done, there's no, it's not insignificant what it takes to raise capital. Uh, and you know, you you can find a lot of attorneys that will do deferred payments. Uh, they'll take the you know if the, but they have to believe in your model, right? You're asking them to, you're asking them to make an investment in a sense because they're going to invest a bunch of time. And hope that you're going to raise X amount of dollars that they're going to take some percentage of for themselves. You know, if you really wanted the price, the amount of work that it takes to do a private placement, you know, a small one, there's a lot of documents. There's a bunch of documents that have to be done. It's probably ten or fifteen thousand dollars worth of work easily every time. Even if it's you know, people say, well, you're just using a, you're using you're using one you already you, you already wrote. Yeah, but every single time I got to reread every word of it. It's a 15, 20 page private placement memorandum. I got to read every word of that to make sure that it all applies again. You can't just fill in a name and an address and say, here you go. There's a lot of stuff to it. And you want to make sure that the deck is proper. You want to make sure that before they talk to people, you know, any good, you know, attorney that does this stuff will want to, will really want to put you through the ringer on terms of what the investment is, how's it working, you know, what's the model of the business, you know, and I do a lot of this kind of work and honestly, more of it ends up being pro bono than anything else. Uh, but that's me and not everybody does that kind of stuff, but there are a lot, there's, there's plenty of people out there that help companies, right. That want to help people. And that's really what it's about. 
but I do say, you know, have, have you have you thought about tapping out your credit cards? Have you taken home equity lines? If you believe in your business that much, you better put your own money into it, your own time into it. Don't just go to people and say, you know, Shark Tank is. I would say, I was, I, you know, you could kind of generalizing things, but like I would say, like email was the dumbing down of our society. Shark Tank was the dumbing down of business, right? It made it look like everybody in the world can go raise money whenever they want. It's not true. It's simply just not true. Not every idea will get funded. Most of them don't. Most of them. We watch Shark Tank and we think that everybody's getting, and you look on Instagram and you think, oh, everybody's making money. Everybody's raising all this money. Oh my God, that person raised 10 million. That person raised 5 million. If they raised 5 million for that, certainly I can raise 5 million for what I'm thinking. No, you can't. 99 yeah. out of 100 of us won't ever raise that money. Because they're looking for that 10x return. Yeah. And it's so hard for a business to be able to do that without, you know, breaking things. Yeah. I mean, you really got to break a lot of stuff. You yeah. got to really try to go to the moon. So you're absolutely right about it. When they're taking money from friends and family, though, right, they're going to need to get a lawyer for that you as gotta well. Get it's got to be documented. You can't just take the money. You got to document it. But there are there are some standard forms out now which are really helpful. So Y Combinator, I'm sure you've heard of them. One of the yeah, big, I'm actually in there. Yeah, okay. I'm actually signing up for their startup school. Right. So, so Y Combinator, you know, they, they did a great job of changing the friends and family world. Because uh, everybody used to use, you'd either use, you'd either have to raise equity or you could raise convertible notes. And convertible notes are pretty complex. It's a complex, you know, they're hard to, you know, there's discounts and there's this and there's coupons and all this other stuff. And people don't understand it all, but they were all using it. So they came out with something called a safe, which is, you know, this, uh, and I can't remember the name, the the acronym offhand, securities uh, as a future for future, whatever, whatever, equity. Right, future equity, right? Uh, so it's like, you're basically agreeing to, this is what the, you know, that this is how I can take in your money and I don't have to value it right now. Right. I'm just going to tell you, Mike, I believe in, you know, you're selling, say you're going to sell me, you know, ironbound, you're going to sell me a safe and ironbound. And you say, you know, look, I, I need 10,000 or 20,000 from you and I need to raise a hundred thousand. So we're going to raise 20,000 from five different people. And, you know, I'm a friend of yours. And I say, yeah, I believe in you. I'll, 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 I'll give you the 20,000. Uh, and you say, well, I can't value the business right now. Cause I, I just, we're not doing enough. I don't know enough about where we're going to be. And I say, that's, that's fine. You know, when you raise that first, you know, when you raise your first, you know, million, cause I believe in what you're telling me, I know you're going to go out and raise that million. When you raise that million, I want a 20% discount off of the valuation so day one i made 20 percent of my money whenever you make whenever you make whenever you get there right i took a high risk investment you know i may see no, i may i may get nothing you may lose it all but that's the risk that i'm willing to take because i believe in you and that's really what a safe is i'm gonna plug a book brad phil's venture deals y'all are the man Check that book out, man. Yeah. Um, it's worth a reread for me too on all this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, now he's, he's, start, he's the guy. As we start to wrap up here, I do want to ask you uh, a couple more questions. And the main thing I want you to talk about is we have two types of listeners on this pod. We've got early stage founders mm -hmm. of small businesses, and we've got early stage founders of tech startups. Right. Right. Two different approaches. And I know sometimes we like to overlap in terms of how we teach entrepreneurship, but just like you said, one group is really focused on going out there, raising capital, you know, getting that 10x return. You know, somebody else out here might be doing a lifestyle business, might be doing three, four, five yeah. X return. Maybe they want to sell in the future. So when you look at the landscape between startups and small businesses from a legal perspective, mm -hmm. right? Like, what are some recommendations or considerations you have for our audiences? I mean, I, I would say, you know, you can put them together in terms of the legal, you know, framework for how you start a business and what you're looking to do. Uh, you know, thinking about, you know, your, your eventual exit, it does change what you might want to structure it as, right? You know, if you, if you're structuring, you know, let's say you, you are, you do think you're going to have a tech start, you're, you're starting a tech startup and you have a phenomenal idea. You know, I almost always start almost, I, LLCs are the easy way to do most most businesses because you have less framework and less regulation around it, uh, and your taxation is you know simple flow through. It's very easy to understand. 
some companies end up having to be you end up having to be a C corp if you if you know you're going to end up taking on foreign investment or things along those lines, LLCs are a nightmare, right? So there, there's some upfront thought process and tech startups have to go through a lot of this. I'm doing a conversion for a major tech com- for a, a company that's been around, you know, they've now been around two or three years. They have ridiculously amazing tech in the metals production world. Like, I mean, it's like off the charts, cool stuff. Uh, they're starting to raise money. They have foreign investment and we have to convert it from an LLC to a C corp. It's super confusing. It's super complex. Uh, there's a lot of tax stuff going on. I had to bring in international tax people, stuff that I don't want to deal with, honestly, but you, yeah. you know, it's part of the game. So thinking through some of those things from the beginning definitely helps. Uh, and, uh, you know, a simple lifestyle business will never have to think about that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not even, it's, it's never on the radar. So tech companies definitely have some different stuff on the radar. Uh, but you know, you also don't want to make your life too complex too early and think about things that may never happen and spend a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time, you know, thinking about things, but, you know, thinking about your exit and knowing where you might go and how you might get out is, is an important piece. I always suggest people understand. And I think, you know, the book you just mentioned is actually a very good one. Uh, you know, that starts to help you understand what are the landscapes for, how do you actually get out of a business and what does that mean? You know, a lifestyle business, you know, typically you're just going to be calling a business broker, you know, 10 years from now and saying, hey, you know, I built this really nice business, you know, this great pizza shop or this, you know, salon that's doing great. I, I'm, I just, I want to get out, you know, so now either you need to figure out, is there somebody within the business that you can, you know, sell it to, or, you know, have, have you been building up somebody to take over, you know? People don't think about exit plans enough, especially family businesses, you know, and you end up with these second generation family businesses that are now turning to a third generation that has this much interest in that business, like literally zero interest. They don't want it at all. Now, what do you do? Who do you sell it to? Yeah. Thankfully, you know, I have a business coach and so I'm surrounded by uh, entrepreneurs that are, you know, in the process of selling their businesses and it's not always the pretty it, it is. Especially for small businesses. It's it's really um, hard. I mean, you know, I've I've been working in private equity for a few years as well. So, you know, you see family businesses that are super successful. I mean, I've seen businesses like the numbers are off the charts. They're amazing. But they have absolutely zero next level management, next level anything. And they're trying to sell their business. And you're saying, okay, great, but the minute you walk out the door. Yeah. There's nothing here. It's a it's shell of a fun. building. It's funny. It's like on the other side. You know, you go to a small business. Like I used to, I like to make fun of lawyers. Like you walk in a lawyer's yeah. office. He's got like stacks of books back there, uh, paper all over the place. <laughs> but it's like a legitimate business. Yeah. But the thing is, when you start trying to sell that sucker, everything's got to be organized. Yeah. It's like, I don't want your messy office. No, I mean, you got to <laughs> get your house in order. So that's why I tell people, like, that's one of the, one of the services that we started offering at the firm is, you know, get your house in order, right? You know, my, my new partner, Brett is like, uh, I mean, he's done, when I tell you he's done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of transactions, he's done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of transactions. He knows what needs to be in order, how to get it there. And, you know, so for a business that's, that's you know, mature and thinking, but even early stage, you know, if you have a good attorney that's, that's a business person, they can help you understand, here's how you start structuring things. So I have, you know, one of my startups, you know, that I'm invested in and, and part of, we're structuring things now because we know, we, we already know that we're gonna raise money. We know we're gonna get there. The people that are in it are really good. It's mature, you know, been around veterans a lot, around this industry for a long time. We're getting our, our house will be perfectly clean, ready for open house, always. You know, the, I always say to people that when you're selling your house, when, when's your house look the best? The day you go to sell it is the day your house looks the best, right? Tiny, clean, everything, ready Why to go. Why didn't you live in it that way for, for, for the last 10 years? Shouldn't you have enjoyed it? Yeah. Enjoy it. Now, on the structure thing, right? Mm-hmm. We have companies on here that are CPG companies. So they might start out like a beverage or whatever. Yeah. You know, and they kind of start out very modestly. And then all of a sudden they have this opportunity to take on investment. Let's say I'm like a brewery or something yeah. or, you know, I just start like a cold brew company or whatever. 
Do you recommend that they not be an LLC then if they are already thinking that they're going to take on uh, some no, kind of capital? You can you can take on capital as an LLC. It's totally it's totally acceptable. It's just the it, it's when you get into foreign investment or a lot of a lot of strategic companies. If it, if it's a company investment, they, they may want to see it as a, as a corporation at that point. You, okay. you can always take a one time conversion. So it's doable. And if the money's coming in, you get it done then. I think the one thing, the one non-negotiable that we did not talk about that just came into my head was insurance, right? We did not uh -oh. talk about insurance, which is a critical piece of every business and should be at the foundation, right? Make sure you have a your a good insurance broker. Uh, your lawyer can help you find one. Your accountant can help you find one, uh, you know, that understands the business that you're getting into and helps you get insured properly, right? The amount of companies that I see that are underinsured is numerous, right? It's most businesses are underinsured or improperly insured and they don't even know it. They're doing something and it's excluded from their insurance policy. Well, what good does that do you? That's because you that's, then, then you have nothing. Yeah, try being me teaching corporate boxing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Companies in New York City. Yeah, it's a big deal. Like, you know, they're, they're going to ask for your insurance. You better provide an insurance certificate. And the minute you don't have it, you're not doing business. So my question to you is, right, going back to what we said about the trademark and stuff, at what stage do you recommend a company get that? Is it general liability insurance? You, you, like are, yeah, usually for a small business, you can get a business owner's policy, which would pick up your general liability, your property and casualty and your workers comp all in one. And it should be a pretty real, it should be a really low rate. You, you almost need it. Uh, you almost want to say day one. <laughs> I mean, it is a, you don't want to go too far down a path of running a business without any insurance. The minute you're selling things and somebody's buying your goods, your, your services, you better be insured. Got it. It seems all overwhelming. You know, we're like, I just want it to, sometimes it makes it seem like it's so hard for people to start businesses. Yeah. You know, you just want to jump out there and get started. And then they're like, you need legal, you need an account, you need all this other stuff. And so, you know, for our listeners that might be feeling overwhelming, I'm taking everything yeah. in, I'm processing. But one of the things I always come back to is you got to, this stuff has to happen concurrently. Yeah you're generating revenue because if you're not making money yeah none of this matters none, none of it matters none of it matters you you can have you can have everything in place but if you can't make any money then you don't have a business <laughs> yeah man i feel so lucky being able to do these podcasts because i just learned so much by all the different guests i'm sure um i just i just soak it all in and so as we wrap up here you know are there any saved rounds you know in the military we say save rounds we're shooting then they say fire off any save rounds so is there anything else we didn't cover that you would like to leave our audience with? You know, I, I, I always end up, I mean, almost every, anything that I do, any podcast, any posts, everything that I do, I always end with be kind <laughs> because if you're not going to be kind and you're not going to be a good person and do the right things, it doesn't matter. No, 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 nothing else matters. You can have all the lawyers, you can have all the accountants, you can have everybody. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to be successful. You know, you, you got to pay it forward. You got to work. You got to live in, you got to live with empathy and do the right things always. And it'll, it'll all come around for you. Now, Mark, you're part of the Bunker Lab ecosystem. You've been helping entrepreneurs in Philly and in New York and Newark. This is my guy, y'all. So how can we as a community here at Bunker support you? Uh, I mean, you got the, the veteran community does so much, uh, you know, in and of itself. I mean, you've already given so much, uh, in your service and, you know, we all thank you for that every day of our lives. Uh, you know, help me. The, the biggest help for me is, you know, I put a lot of content out on social media, uh, any support I can get on that content and comments or thoughts, you know, obviously that helps all, you know, small business, helping small business is what we all have to do for each other. Love it. And where can people find you at? Uh, I can you know, be it's, uh, my, 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 I use Mark Snyderman, M-A-R-C-S-N-Y-D-E-R-M-A-N as my tag on Instagram, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. It's it's my tag everywhere. Uh, SnydermanLawGroup.com, uh, MarkSnyderman.com. You can find I'm easy to find. 
I'll be sure to include it in the show notes. I appreciate and it. Mark, you got like 16,000 followers on Instagram. Yeah, I got I'm like, man, you're, you're an influencer. I'm cranking it up. No, I think my puppy is more important than I am. She just got a, she got our first ambassador request. They said they're like free stuff. I mean, she is a, she is, she does look like a model. So I have to give her, I have to give it to her. Love it. Well, we had, a, it was a pleasure having you here today. And for our listeners, do us a favor and subscribe to the Transition Podcast and newsletter on Substack at the link below. I release a newsletter every Tuesday and a podcast every Friday. So you can leave a comment about each episode on Substack. If you have any questions about your own venture, post that as well. I'm always looking for content and I would love to learn what you all are struggling with in your own ventures. Maybe I can get Mark to contribute to the newsletter on some uh, a, just a deeper dive on these legal considerations. Glad to do it. And uh, one of the things I'll say is I actually release the podcast every Thursday, but I'll push it out via newsletter on Friday. So um, hope you guys enjoy that. And uh, if you want to get plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem, make sure you visit www.bunkerlabs.org, select the city nearest you, and sign up for our local newsletter. From there, attend one of our networking events, either in person or virtual. It's that simple. Make sure you also check out Bunker Online, where you can learn about our many different programs to support your entrepreneurial journey. We have programs that'll take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to grow alongside other founders and CEOs. Register today by clicking connect at bunkerlabs.org. Mark, thanks again for being with us. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.